the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello and joining you once again this week from Mallorca where there was consternation at the weekend after a blue shark sighting on one of the island's most popular beaches. My name is Daniel Freiber. I'm the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast and I'm here to tell you that Vincenzo Nibali did make a return to racing last week but it was in civvies, not Lycra. The shark of the strait remaining very much retired but appearing at the Giro di Sicilia. Meanwhile, the World Tour Peloton, Nibali left behind last year, is probably going to need a bigger boat to sail through the rest of the Ardennes Classics without Tadej Pogacar taking another bite out of their confidence, hopes and dreams. Much more on Pog and Amstel Gold shortly, but first, let's succinctly introduce our first guest. Guest number two being currently mid-convoluted journey to somewhere in the Belgian Ardennes, scheduled to join us in a few minutes. In fact, guest number one is much more of a co-host, comrade, friend, inspiration. I'm saying all of these things because thanks to him and Simon Gill and Tom Wally this week, we're a prestigious award-winning podcast. It is our own Laurel Reed, Lionel Burney, the pride of the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Daniel. Yeah, that was nice, wasn't it? We won the wilderness category at the Sports Podcast Awards. I don't know whether that's a comment on me. I thought you were looking slightly slightly (laughs) unkempt these days, Lionel. Well, it was the category that the, your big cycling, beard. Yeah, the cycling podcast fitted into. Uh, we won that category with the Tour de Cost series. And uh, yeah, very nice to, uh, first of all, be nominated. And then it was a listener vote. So very big thank you to everyone who voted for us over the past few weeks. Really nice surprise to win. And uh, just recognition, really, for what was quite a left field idea for us going off to cycle around the Scottish football grounds. Of course, it was a a trip that took on uh, a whole other dimension of meaning for us because uh, we embarked on that trip just a few days after Richard passed away last year. I really enjoyed the ride, um, you know, despite the, the sadness, of course. Uh, Simon Gill with great company, my thanks to him. And then I really enjoyed the process of putting the episodes together with Tom Wally. As the listeners will know, Tom's post-production and sound design is second to none. And he really, well, he took our kind of carrier bag of audio ingredients and, and knocked them up into a Michelin star meal. So thank you very much to Tom. And uh, yeah, there we are. We've won a, an award at the Sports Podcast Awards for the Tour de Cost. So thank you very much, everyone. Oh, very well deserved, Lionel and Tom and Simon. Lionel, otherwise, how are you? Very well, thank you. Yeah, back on the bike, actually, Daniel. I've been uh, done a couple of long rides over the weekend. I made quite a lot of fanfare. You've, you've mentioned this twice now. Well, You mentioned it once to me earlier today, and you've mentioned it again. <laughs> the only conversations that count are the ones that are recorded, Daniel, as you know. But yeah, I'm looking forward to a, a sort of early summer of cycling through the the Giro while you're toiling away in Italy. Um, looking forward to, yeah, getting some big rides under my belt how about you all very well Lionel uh as I think I might have mentioned a few weeks ago I was training for an ultra marathon ultra trail race in Mallorca which was subsequently cancelled so I've continued to train but it's become a more of a sort of navel gazing vanity project to no particular end other than you know chasing a few Strava a few Strava KOMs and not getting very close but yeah all, all very well Lionel all very well um we should 
crack on, should we not, with the news roundup? Or have you got something for us first? Well, we will do in just a moment. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Super Sapiens are our title sponsors, of course. Thank you very much to them. I've been looking at the Super Sapiens blog at blog.supersapiens.com. Lots of really interesting articles on there. And one that caught my eye addresses the question of what if you can't eat before exercising? Uh, Daniel, do you tend to eat before going for one of your ultra marathon training sessions? I think you would have to, yeah, you would certainly have to eat before an ultra distance event, I would suggest. That's very con- conventional wisdom. But you would you would have to think, wouldn't you, about what you eat and how soon, you know, what sort of time before your effort you eat. You would. Actually, Lionel, the, the goat of the Michael Jordan, well, I suppose the Tade Pogacar of trail running, Kilian Journey, um, has been speaking to L'Equipe in a, one of these interviews where it's uh, two sports stars speaking to each other with Roman Bardet. Roman Bardet is a big uh, aficionado of a lot of outdoor pursuits not just cycling and they talk quite a lot about this actually about fueling and how other endurance sports have learned quite a lot from professional cycling and how generally thinking about this subject has evolved and completely changed in fact over the last few years interesting well it's a subject that super sapiens tackle as i say the question what if you can't eat before exercise uh, the idea of a fasted training ride i.e a training ride on an empty stomach is one of those kind of old wives tale old as the hills ideas isn't it but now we all have the science at our fingertips thanks to super sapiens because we can see what the blood glucose levels are doing and how they respond to eating whether it's the amount of food that you eat or the type of carbohydrate you eat and so over a kind of trial and error process you can work out the best way to fuel for the key training sessions and work out what works best because we all respond slightly differently it's a it's a piece that uh, is backed up by a study and it's a really interesting read and you can find it at blog.supersapiens.com and if you want to find out more about the super sapiens system of continuous glucose monitoring itself supersapiens.com is where you need to go Lionel, time for the news roundup. I sense we recorded last week a little too early to include the Bravanza Pale, either the women's or the men's editions. There were two intriguing races, those with Silvia Persico taking the women's race ahead of Demi Follering and Dorian Godon of AG2 AG2 out the men's. We might be hearing a bit more about that victory in Dorian Godon later um, because we have, we're going to have someone on the pod who knows Dorian Godon pretty well. Uh, Godot out sprinted EF education first easy post Ben Healy much more about him too later Godot not a particularly prolific winner but he has prevailed twice Lionel in which race that we mentioned at some length last week putting me on the spot I can't remember it was go on put me out of my misery Daniel it was the downwind cheese roll we christened it last week of course Parry Camembert the race that in Mitch Docker's memory was well, it was still synonymous with one particular memory wasn't it um one particular occasion 
I mean, I think it was around 2011 when he was. Well, he went. He went home with a bounty of several camemberts, didn't he? And um, had to dispense with them the next day because, as in his words, they were a bit ripe, mate. <laughs> Good impression. Sorry, just on Dorian Godon, I can't shift the kind of uh, a, a, a melting together of two literary references. The picture, yeah, the picture Dorian of Dorian Gray, Gray and, and waiting for Godot. Uh, it's just yeah, now it's yeah. in my mind. I can't shift it. Speaking of. French one-day races. There were three of them in quick succession in the far east of France over the weekend. The classic Grand Besançon, the Tour du Jura and the Tour du Dieu. And they were won respectively by Kevin Vauclin, Victor Lafay and Jesus Herrada. Two wins for Cofidis there. And three good rides for Thibaut Pinot, a fifth and two second places. This made me think, Lionel, it was around about this time of year when I tried to get some, I think it was on the back of him winning a stage of the Tour of the Alps, actually, I tried to get some momentum behind the whole cycling's coming home. Thibaut Pino was going to win the Tour de France. Lightning Seeds reimagined. Probably still remember that. It's probably probably still ringing in your ears, in fact, my rendition, my reimagining of that classic. Oh, yeah. How could I forget? Oh, it's just come back to me and my face has gone hot. Moving swiftly on, more about Thibaut Pino, much more about Thibaut Pino at the... Uh, Giro d'Italia in fact which we'll be covering daily and Thibaut Pino will be there daily we hope as well we hope he'll be riding daily Just sorry Lionel well I, these are very much his home races aren't they I'm surprised he had time to, to take part he was, wasn't sort of checking on his flock of goats or something as uh, as he was riding past I, we, we kind of took these uh, French Cup races a little bit lightly a couple of weeks ago when talking to uh, Larry Warbass, but it struck me just how tough some of these events are. The Tour du Jura, the finish of it was uh, pretty savage. It finished uh, on Mont Poupet, and uh, well, they seemed to be climbing it for for absolutely ages. It was it was almost as if the finish line just wouldn't get any closer. And it was Vauclin, Pinot, Guillaume Martin, Nans Peters, Ben O'Connor. You know, really good riders. Tour de France caliber. Oh, the big French winners. Yeah, absolutely. So tough racing. Lionel, we're going to talk about two stage races gracing Italian soil. The first is the four-day, was the four-day Giro di Sicilia Tour of Sicily that ended on Friday with a much-needed overall victory for Astana and their leader, Alexei Lutsenko. He wrapped that up with a commanding victory on the final stage ahead of Louis Meinkes. Uh, the Tour of the Alps got underway today in Austria. This race, of course, skips back and forth across the Italo-Austrian border like a sort of flannering itinerant 19th century Habsburg monarch. Uh, and it got underway with a hilly first stage won by Theo Gegenhart of Ineos Grenadiers. He went ahead of local boy Felix Gall of ag 2 Citroën. We, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago how strong he was at the Tour of the Basque Country, so he's continuing that good run of form. And a couple of seconds further back was Hugh Carthy. Speaking of... British riders, we've got Fleshwell on on Wednesday, men's and women's Fleshwell on. There was some good news for Trek Segafredo earlier today. Lizzie Dignan well, announced that she'll be making an early comeback after her second pregnancy. She gave birth to well, her second child in September. She was supposed to do La Vuelta Femenina at the start of May, but is coming back early. So that's another thing to look forward to on Wednesday at Fleshwell On. Yes, Daniel, Lizzie Dignan's first race since the Women's Tour in October 2021. 
and Lionel, last but certainly not least as far as the prestige of the racing this weekend is concerned, Amstel Gold is going to be, men's Amstel Gold is going to be the main subject of this podcast, certainly when we're in review mode before we start to look ahead to Flesh Wallon and Liege Bastogne Liege. Um, can you tell us what happened briefly in men's and women's races? Well, Demi Vollering won the women's race. Uh, this is her favourite week of the year. She really wants to win Liège, Baston Liège on Sunday. And, uh, well, SD works back on track. And then the men's race, well, same same again from Tele Pogacar, wasn't it? Um, adding the Amstel Gold race to his win at the Tour of Flanders few weeks ago he was in the big move that went clear with just under 100 kilometers to go also in there were tom pidcock magnus sheffield his ineos grenadiers teammate ben healy significantly but also the likes of alexi luksenko uh, andrea kron was in there as well and well the three of them pogacar Pidcock and healy got away and well when pogacar turned on the afterburners Neither Pidcock nor Healy could really respond. And that was, well, it was Pogachar, Healy and Pidcock first, second and third over the line. Really impressive result for Ben Healy. I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about him later on. But Pogachar's incredible spring continues. And, well, we'll discuss that with our mystery guest in a moment. But Daniel, whenever I think of the Amstel Gold Race, I can't... Uh, shift the memory of when the Tour de France went to Valkenburg went over the Coburg in 2006 I think it was and there was a real party atmosphere on the climb there's a few bars down on the corner uh, when they swing onto the climb everyone was enjoying the afternoon sunshine and as I walked back down the hill after the race had finished and it resembled the sort of clear up after a rock festival I was treated to the sight of a group of lads rocking a portaloo until it went over and their their mate was inside it i mean pretty uh pretty staggering image to see this guy i mean this explains i don't know i was there on that occasion on that day but this explains why and i was about to say that i'm still gold i was thinking the other day it's the biggest race i've never been to i would say is that why um, is that why? Yeah. It, it, it's kind yeah. of it's it's sort of road cycling meets the, the sort of the slight excesses of the cyclocross crowd i would say um perhaps but certainly on that tour de france day doesn't sound like me does it no it's not like and, and being being uh, knocked over whilst trapped inside a portaloo that really doesn't sound like you i mean it doesn't sound like anyone really the poor chap who came out uh, it didn't look like he particularly enjoyed it either um but his mates thought it was absolutely hilarious as as people who do that sort of thing often do what's the biggest race you've never been to lionel oh Good question. Probably uh, Il Lombardia. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. You crossed off. Um, Sam Remo was missing from your Palmares, wasn't it? Um, uh, until this year. It was. It was in an official sense. Yeah. So uh, a friend of the podcast episode coming on Milan San Remo as a sort of appetizer for the Giro. Uh, once we've got uh, Liège Baston Liège out of the way. Tom Wally is working. He's crafting that as we speak. Well, Lionel, we're being joined by our third guest a little bit later than advertised or a bit of it later than usual today. We're not going to give him the usual big licks with the intro because we're we're not getting the full Warbass experience this week. However, he's the Motown Maestro. We knew that he was otherwise very much engaged with the Ardennes Classics this week. 
but we weren't too proud to beg. It's the former US National Road Race champion and Tour de Suisse stage winner Larry Warbass of AG Tour AG 2R Citroën. In the immortal words of Marvin Gaye, what's going on, Larry? Very stripped down intro for you this week. Yeah, I miss I miss the other intros. That makes me boost my confidence before I come on air, you know. Uh, <clears throat> but I well, guess well, I was ready. Well, I should I should just say, sort of novelty sporting. We're talking sort of novelty sporting events this week. We might get to this because, as you know, as listeners all know, we have pejoratively been calling Fleshwell on the uphill cheese roll for a long time. You, of course, are famous for your connection with Traverse City, the home of cherry pit spitting. Um, cheese, if I say cheese rolling to you, do you know what that is? No. Oh, I think I maybe saw this. This is something in the UK where they like roll these wheels of cheese down the hill and then like they chase them. Correct. Okay. A very steep hill. Yeah. And our contention or my contention has always been that, that Fleshwell on amounts to little more than the cycling equivalent sort of turned upside down that really there's not a lot to flesh well on apart from the uphill cheese roll at the end anyway larry we'll get to that we'll get to that just let's wind back to my question of about five minutes ago now how how are you doing what's going on yeah doing well uh, just about <clears throat> to head off to the ardennes myself so uh, i've got a flight this afternoon so yeah I, uh yeah after bass country i went back to altitude for like a week just to try to keep it going uh, up until the Giro. Um, so you were, you were yanked, you were yanked down from altitude. I was, yeah, that was a you? bit disappointing. Um, you but... were lassoed by, by uh, Vincent Lavenue and your <laughs> team management because there were some issues in the team, weren't there, with illness and injury and you got an unexpected, as you put it, full, all expenses paid trip to the Basque country. Exactly, yeah. Except my dinner the last night was was too expensive to be uh, invoiced to the team, so maybe it wasn't all expenses oh, paid. Really? But, uh, Come on. Yeah, I went to a Come really, on. really you nice dinner, but you know, I was like, wow, why not, you know? I was like, ah, oh, you know, okay. it was a rough week. I was like, ah, oh, well, you know, I know the Basque country is known for its food, so just found a super nice restaurant, uh, got the menu, you know, was just sitting by myself enjoying this nice dinner. And then Chavez ended up sitting down at the table next to me with like his family and friends. And I was like, oh gosh, you know, here I'm sitting at this restaurant by myself. It's kind of funny that I end up running into a cyclist, but, but yeah. Anyway. And I bet he was on expenses. Yeah. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you were at, you were at Isola, you came, well, you went to the Basque country, then you went to Isola again yeah. and then you well you didn't do amstel no. and you've got flesh and liege yeah. coming up so is that right so yeah we'll see how did that go larry a lot and, of listeners might wonder i mean we're talking at lunchtime on monday flesh will own will be underway in two days time so just talk us briefly through how it goes from here you get yourself to the airport in nice and then fly to where yeah, uh, then I fly to Brussels, and then someone picks me up at the airport, and then we're staying um, in Verviers, so, um, <clears throat> yeah, in Wallonie, uh, and I don't know, maybe, I don't know how far we are from the start, so tomorrow we'll do a little recon, um, you know, probably ride, like, the last lap of uh, flesh, just to, like, refresh it in our memories, um, so probably, like, an hour and a half, two-hour ride, and then, yeah, get ready for the race on Wednesday, so... So yeah, it's pretty pretty standard. But yeah, <laughs> did you catch much of Amstel Gold? I did. Yeah. Um, I mean, crazy thing was I like uh, turned it on, and then it was like the race is already finished, and it was like well, not finished, but you know, a lot of things had happened. It was like before the TV coverage even came on. So um, yeah, I guess 
it was pretty crazy because uh, it definitely didn't play out like normally, you know, it normally does. So I was trying to think. I, I'm not sure I can remember a Fleshwell, uh, sorry, an Amstel Gold, apart from, I think, did Kreutiger finish solo? But that was with a sort of sneaky move in the last few kilometers. But I can't really remember one being dominated by an individual like well, that. Well, in the can last years, it's always been like at least like it's a really, really small group the last years, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, back in the day, it used to be like a big group, right? Coming into the line or the bottom of the Kahlberg. So, I mean, it's still been like a small group, but I've never seen like it go so far out. That to me was pretty crazy, you know, as in like the winning move started so early. So, but it's like, we're seeing that in so many races this year. Because you're accustomed to passing Tadej Pogacar in training. Um, what's, the, what's the, I mean, there's talk, there's a lot of talk this morning. L'Equipe have done a big piece this morning where thoughts inevitably are starting to, or the conversation in professional cycling is inevitably turning to how to pog-proof races or how teams pog-proof their strategy and you've got people like Cedric Vasseur who's the manager of Coffee saying that we are now ignoring Pogacar we're riding a separate race and it almost sounded as though they were literally with um, Axel Zangli yesterday they were literally riding for second Mm -hmm. and seeing the value of second place and you know there was talk in that article as well of not defeatism but certainly a degree of resignation and this has been a bit of a theme I remember speaking to Simon Yates at the end of Parry Nice and he sort of bridled he bristled a little bit when I I broached this the, the fact that there is this kind of resignation starting to set in to a certain extent yeah I mean I don't know it's it's pretty hard when you see uh he just is so dominant you know it's like I think in Flanders everyone talked about anticipation 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 well then like Pogacar anticipated the anticipation and went with like you know 100 k's to go so uh, I mean, I don't know. It's not like uh, I was joking the other day that we're going to start racing like cyclocross starts, you know, like it's just going to go from the gun soon, you know, uh, because the race is just starting so much earlier and earlier and earlier. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the thing is, I think like Pogachar, he was pretty smart there. Like he, yeah, sure. He was isolated early, but there weren't very many guys with teammates. So in the end, uh, it was kind of mano a mano. And when it comes to that, he can't lose at the moment. So um, I mean, flesh will be maybe a different race, um, but yeah, I think it's difficult to see anyone beating him um, in the form he has right now. Larry, you have been at altitude as as just discussed. I mean, that's been another talking point as regards Pogacar's spring. Well, certainly something that we were talking about at Paris before Paris that he hadn't been at altitude were we going to see him? Was he going to be penalized by that? Or was he going to be fresh? I mean, that was certainly the intention, UAE's intention, that he would come into these spring races a little bit fresher, having not been at altitude. And we're seeing the sort of result of that, I guess. But what do you, I mean, what do you make of that sort of payoff, that that ledger, you know, the, the sort of freshness versus the, you know, being absolutely al dente, having been at, altitude for long periods early in the year what do you think i mean clearly like the altitude works for jumbo really well you know i mean they do it like really i guess traditional you know they go three weeks to altitude come down race and then they're always flying you know so i think it's hard to like take what pogachar does and use that as sort of like the example because i think he is just like uh or category you know like he's just like another class uh than so many of the rest of us um 
So, you know, it's, it's hard when you have some guy who's such like a huge talent to like look at what he does and think like, I can do the same thing and be just as good, you know? So, mm. I mean, he's so good that like maybe, maybe he would even be better at altitude. I'm not sure, you know? Um, but I think maybe with altitude, you have to like be a little more careful, um, you know, because it's, you could kill, you know, you could cook yourself, overcook yourself um, when you're up there. So um, I guess with, you know, the amount of racing he's been doing and, um, you know, a lot of travel as well from race to race to race. Um, I think, yeah, maybe if he were to do altitude, it would have cost him a lot more. Also like the mental fatigue of being away from home. So maybe it's beneficial for him to, uh, just be able to be home in between. Yeah. I mean, Larry, you mentioned there about the anticipation and Pogacar anticipated that, didn't he? Because when you looked at that move that went clear with 93k to go, had Tom Pidcock and Magnus Sheffield from Ineos Grenadiers in it. Uh, pretty much every big team was represented except for uh, AG2R, sorry. Uh, Bora, Hansgrohe, <laughs> Trek weren't in there. And, and I suppose Bahrain as well, Mohoric. Jumbo. Uh, Jumbo had Van der Sander in there originally. And then he, ah, he dropped then back. He, then he dropped. Yeah, okay. but... Um, yeah. but they must have all, you know, the shoulders must have slumped when they realised that Pogacar had made that advanced move. I mean, the thing about Amstel, to me, historically, is it feels like almost a um, a magic eye painting. You can't really work out what's going on. There's, there's so many twists and turns, the, the number of climbs, the narrowness of the roads. There's, it's really difficult to spot the patterns of the race normally until the finish. And then you kind of go back and work out how it was won uh, after we know the result. Whereas in this case, it played out a lot more conventionally, I think, because Pogacar got into into that early move. And I mean, I'm surprised in a way that they persisted with it and cooperated with him. Maybe they should have all thought, well, if he's in here, what's the point? This is... I don't know. Yeah, this is something I, you know, I talked about. I talked about Pog, the the business of Pog proofing team strategies. I mean, Maxime Montfort, who's a DS at Lotto Destiny, he was he was sort of exasperated again in keep this morning talking about the fact that teams are still working with UAE. You know, they are still sort of following the the, the traditional dogmas of how you win races and. And also, they're going in. So obviously, some teams, Coffee may, maybe were different, but they are going in with the firm intention of imposing their strategy on races. And he was sort of suggesting that this Pogacar's supremacy has got to the point where they can no longer do that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's hard because you you know if you just are already resigned to losing the race when you start, it's I don't think that's good either. You know, like you need to do your own tactic, and you know if you have a guy who's a favorite to be on the podium, you know I think you still need to <clears throat> go. You know, you need to ride like you're going for the win, even if there ends up being someone better for you. You know, so I, I think teams they have to work with UAE, otherwise it's like. I don't know. You know, I mean, maybe maybe we'll see teams stopping, but I, I don't think so. You know, I think teams still need to ride the race like they, they're going to try to win as well, you know, um, because otherwise it's pretty defeatist to just show up and say, well, there's no chance we're going to win. You know, anything can happen in these races. There's a lot of variables in pro cycling. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's gone really well in Pogacar's favor lately. But again, uh, you know, he could have a bad day or a crash or. Well, yeah, the a puncture that actually stops him. Yeah, there was there was a crash around 52 kilometers to go, which split the peloton, ruled out a few people. So I guess, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. You can't 
just say, oh, we're not we're not going to ride and let it all come back together. But the gap was, you know, never really particularly big, was it? We saw Trek uh, very prominent on the Gulpeberg with about 45k to go, trying to maybe springboard somebody across. Um, but I mean, Pogatra, like you say, Larry, he, he even had a time to have a little casual puncture and a bike change at the bottom of the Kreuzberg, which was a seventh from last climb. And I calculated that it took him about 1500 meters to get back up to the front of the race uh, from the point where he swapped the bike and then rejoined the front of the race. And again, that must be fairly soul destroying. I do think he revealed afterwards that Matthew van der Poel had given him a bit of a tip where to attack. And he attacked on the Isa Boswig, which is a really hard climb. I mean, come on guys, this, this sort of, quintet of riders don't go sharing your intel as well you know give the others a bit of a chance um and i i I suppose the other big incident from the kind of finale of the race was just how strong ben healy was for ef education he rode extremely well um pidcock obviously not quite the same level as the strada bianca pidcock we saw a few weeks ago but the the um, pictures of the race car right in front of pogachar far too close i mean jonathan waters of ef education has made a point on social media as he often does about you know the most motor pacing impact of that um what did you think watching that well i heard some i heard a scandalous a scandalous unfortunately unrepeatable rumor about this this uh, morning is it uh, i mean was it to give amp still a big advert yeah. on tv um no it could have been you could have you could certainly make uh a publicity campaign on the back of you draft arms or something I don't know something pithy and smart oh, on kind of um, funny using Pogacar's <laughs> image they of course they were of course were endorsed by Mark Cavendish a few years ago you remember look that ad up on YouTube if you've never seen it it's a real cracker and definitely in the canon of TV advertisements starring professional cyclists but yeah I did hear something really scandalous about the, the who might have been driving uh, anyway anyway I see well yeah I don't know I was watching it throwing my hands up in the air thinking like you know I mean Pogacar doesn't need any more help like he he's he's you know got the race like locked up anyway so I was just like oh come on like why does the car need to be so close to him you know uh, but I really don't think it changed the outcome of the race. Yeah, maybe he gained like 15 to 20 seconds in the end, but I don't think he was going to lose it. So, uh, you know, but it's just annoying. There is an element of everything to do with motor pacing or motorbikes giving riders an advantage. It's become, it's kind of the the in vogue thing to say on social media, hasn't it? It's kind of the I know what I'm talking about card that people pull out um i i i kind of feel that there's been a sort of a recognition and partly because of you know the sort of studies that were what's the name of the gentleman is it bert blocken the Mm. dutch aerodynamicist that got quite a lot of publicity where it was really laid out how much advantage that riders get from whether it's motorbikes whether it's cars whether they're in front or whether they're behind and people have started to cotton on to this fact and for a long time you know it's been you guys Larry it's been riders who have been talking to us about it in races and I feel like the public has started to understand it a bit better and are in maybe in some cases are in danger of exaggerating how important it is I mean I uh, I'm not sure it would it, it changed the outcome yesterday was are we, were we not talking about a few seconds um, when the car was actually in a position where it would have been helping him which okay might have translated into 
five seconds advantage for Pogacar, which might have been the difference between Healy coming back and, and not, but I think that's fairly unlikely. Yeah, I don't think it changed the outcome of the race, but it's just like a little bit annoying. Um, I just think it so looks. Yeah. I just think it looks I mean, bad. I mean, my my skepticism dial yeah. was up to eleven when I saw the prominent Amstel advertising on the car and thought, mm, "This is just giving." Is this just giving the 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 sponsoring company a little bit of extra bonus airtime? Is it a case of all publicity is good publicity? You know, the sort of the. The, you know the, the 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 kind of whiz pop of the social media firework going off and everyone uh, you know going crazy about you know how out of order it is but i do think there is an issue when it comes to the proximity of the vehicles i mean i thought even worse was just how close the following vehicle was behind um andreas kron and alexi lutsenko who were um you know sprinting it out for fourth place uh the car was you know right on the back wheel wasn't it i mean that looked that looked almost dangerous. I know the the camera foreshortens that gap, but sometimes I just do think, and I know, especially on a course like Amstel, where it's really, really twisty and turny and everybody is, you know, concentration levels are 100% on from the start of the race to the finish. Cars and motorbikes can easily find themselves in a difficult position, a, a, a sub-optimal position. But um, yeah, it didn't look great, that incident with Pogacar for the race, I thought. Larry, uh- have you have you noticed? I mean, again, since probably you've seen these studies as well, or you've been told by people, whether it's in your team or other experts, of the the influence of cars and vehicles behind you. I think most people who have ridden a bike, you know, they know, they're aware. When you're overtaken on a road, you can feel, even if you've never raced, you can feel the sort of the advantage, the drafts you get. But since you have maybe looked at some of these studies, have you thought more about the influence of vehicles behind you and have you actually noticed that you feel the impact of that as well i don't think you really feel that impact i mean yeah i've read the studies and i've seen all the stuff you know on social media and everything and i mean i believe it you know i'm sure it makes a difference but i don't think it's something you really feel um and also like i'd rather not take the risk of having a car like a meter behind me uh and gain you know a tiny advantage than uh you know because yeah, that's really close. And like, uh, I mean, yeah, if they're like five meters and that helps, cool. But like, you know, it's not something, uh, yeah. I mean, we're conscious that it could make a difference, but, uh, you know, it's not like I'm telling my director if I'm in the breakaway to drive like, you know, two meters behind me or something. Cause, uh, you know, I think it's also super dangerous. So, you know, I don't think it's something that we can really feel. Uh, it's not like if there's a car in front of you, then you feel a huge difference, you know, like, I'm sure like yeah. in Tade's situation yesterday, like you feel a big difference, you know, you definitely get an advantage there. Um, but yeah, behind, I don't know if that really makes a huge difference. I mean, yeah, apparently it makes a small difference. There but. is a precedent, isn't there, Daniel? The 1995 Tour de France in Brittany, the prologue time trial, Peter Keane, part of Chris Boardman's team had done all of this modeling about if the car, the following car was you know that bit closer there would be an aerodynamic advantage and of course the conditions that day were very wet Uh, chris boardman lost uh, control skidded out and the team car drove over his ankle fracturing his ankle um so i think they've known Ah. for a long while that the that a a vehicle behind does also um give an aerodynamic advantage but just on the pacing i mean the amsterdam Derny race. Do you remember that, Daniel? The a road race that was um, raced with 
riders each with a derny rider i think the last edition of that was held in 2000 michael burgard of rabobank used to win that fairly uh regularly maybe bring back a derny race and and be done with it have a race that is actually motor paced and then uh, then then give the riders a bit more space when it comes to the classics riding in the same peloton as today pogacar's a bit like that anyway <laughs> is it not the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science to me honestly like endurance is anything just like okay longer than like an hour or two i would say it's about a journey this is magnus sheffield of the ineos grenadiers he was in the break with his teammate tom pidcock at the amstel gold race at the weekend of course and well the ineos grenadiers are fueled by science in sport i think they've been partnered with the team for even longer than they've been supporting the cycling podcast Science in Sport products are designed for endurance athletes and this is Magnus Sheffield talking about the phenomenon of endurance. Endurance doesn't have to be like in a race. It can be just like going out for an adventure. I really love endurance a lot more than like a sprint, for example, because there's a bit more of a process, a bit more suffering. Maybe like with endurance events, it's not so much about, okay, like that feeling during, but more after and like kind of the gratitude or... Uh, the feeling you get after it that's like the best part about endurance science in sport has been supporting the cycling podcast since 2016 you can get everything you need for before during and after your ride at scienceinsport.com they've been keeping my bidons top to the brim and my jersey back pockets stuffed full and i'm very grateful to them for that you can shop the range at scienceinsport.com well chaps it's another sort of semi tippy tappy half monument added to Tade Pogacar's Palmares another one that he's missing and has conspicuously not gone particularly well in um, thus far in his career he's had a couple of appearances in Flesh Well On and never really looked like winning it or he's looked like he's got his timing wrong on the Muda Hui um, Larry I, I've often well, I've heard from riders and often felt that this is a climb that for some riders is a bit of riders whose characteristics would ordinarily suit a steep climb it can be a, a kind of kryptonite and there are very prominent riders i always think of paolo bettini um who was maybe a little bit heavy for the mudahoy but he went through his whole career and never got the hang of it is it possible that we will see further evidence of that with tade pogacar on wednesday that this is just a hill that he is going to die on um not literally but his effort is 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 destined to um, fall short on the Mudahui. Uh, I don't think so. I don't know. <laughs> I, I would never bet against Pogacar in an effort that's longer than uh, a minute at the moment, I think, on an uphill. Uh, so, you know, I think he's just, I mean, the way he rode in Flanders, the way, you know, he rode in Amstel, it's just like, I, I don't know. I mean, if he gets to the bottom with everyone else, I really just can't see anyone beating him. Um, you know, I just think he's, really level above right now so you know i'm sorry that's not an exciting answer um but uh yeah but i mean who knows maybe we'll see him also try to attack further out you know i know that never happens in flesh and i, I don't think he should because i think he's in such good form that he should just like try to start from the bottom with everyone else but uh you know the way it's been going i wouldn't even be surprised if we saw people trying to attack early because you know if you go to the bottom with pogachar you're probably not going to win larry just Talk to us a little bit about the Murdahui. Um, there are riders who I, I think of David Gordou, for example. I've seen him 
quoted before as saying it's the most beautiful finish of the year, certainly the one that he likes the most. Um, we, as already alluded to, found it to be slightly predictable. It lends itself to fairly predictable outcomes. We've seen you know, a lot of riders, I talked about riders who haven't got the hang of it. There have been some riders in the last 20 years who have conspicuously, they've, they've really got the hang of it, like Alejandro Valverde, and it can lend itself to fairly predictable rating but from your point of view as a rider what don't we know about the Murderhui and and how you master it yeah i mean i think the thing is um it's so hard like you know it's like okay first you have this false flat drag so you're all you're not like coming in with a ton of speed right you know you're 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 coming in already like going uphill for probably about a k or maybe between 500 meters and a K before you turn onto like a small road. And then it gets like hard and it only gets harder really. So, um, you know, it's like, it looks hard on TV, but in person it's even steeper. Um, so it's really, it really is a wall. Um, and, you know, I think there is like a little bit of tactics in terms of like positioning and where, you know, where to launch um, if you are a contender for the win. So, you know, I think if you go too early, it's just like it's too hard of an effort. And, uh, you know, it's it's like um, it's too easy to explode, I guess. So um, it's really about, I guess, probably staying in the game, you know, staying in good position uh, until, you know, you can go, for, for example, a guy like Pogachar go till the end, you know, so. You know, it's like there's like a left hand and then a right hand bend. And just after that right hand bend, I think, you know, if he's still there with the front guys, then that's where you go. Because if you go any earlier, I think uh, you can blow too early. I suppose the question is, who on the start list is there that could beat Pogacar? I mean, no Vingegaard, no Roglic. Uh, Alaphilippe is not riding, but also is not the Alaphilippe of a couple of years ago. I mean, Tom Pidcock uh, looked pretty good at Amstel. You know, he's a lightweight rider. He could be suited to the climb. But, I mean, last year's winner, Dylan Turns, was a bit of a surprise, perhaps. And um, so, you know, maybe there is scope for some kind of upset. But I have to say, after after the Amstel Gold Race, it does feel um, like, basically, Pogacar just has to get to the bottom of that final climb and there won't be anyone who can climb it quicker than him. Although... Apparently, Ben Healy was climbing the um, the final hills on uh, on Sunday at Amstel Gold as quick, if not quicker, than Pogacar. So maybe there is a glimmer of hope for some of the opposition. I don't know. I mean, the thing is, I think it's different when you're fatigued. <laughs> I'm trying. In the final. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> you're really, yeah, sorry, you're really, guys. Yeah, really I'm not, trying. I'm not, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> what about like Moss or something? Is Enric Moss here? Yeah, he's on the he's on the start list. Yeah. I mean, he's one of the only guys. I mentioned Gordu recently. Gordu. Yeah, I think Gordu's got a good chance as well. Quite a fast finisher. Larry, we mentioned to you before we started recording. um, Well, your team leader, nominal team leader for these races, Benoit Cosnefroy. He had a bad day yesterday in Amstel, and he was sick. I think last week. So he sounds quite pessimistic about his chances. Unfortunately, uh, Dorian Gordon, who won. The Bramant's appeal last week is also well. He had a crash yeah. yesterday, so everything points to you. Oh yeah, Harry. Uh, could you be the man? No, I could don't think so. Could you be the man? <laughs> I don't think so at the moment. I mean, honestly, I think you know. I'm hoping. I mean, Benoit was still third in Brabant's appeal, so um, you know, I'd say that points to 
you know, he obviously is in good form if he dropped the whole Peloton on that last hill. So, um, you know, I, I will definitely still go all in for Benoit. And I hope that, uh, you know, maybe he didn't have a good day on Sunday, but I, I hope he'll have uh, a good day Wednesday. And I'm sure we'll still, you know, do everything we can to set him up to do the best uh, result he can. And I know he really likes Flash. He's been second there before. So, um, so yeah. We'll, we'll hope and pray and, uh, you know, try to get him healthy, I guess. How, how much of a solve for the team's mood was Godon's win in Brabant's appeal? Because we talked last time you were on, Larry, uh, three or four weeks ago, you diplomatically said we really need a win. Yeah. Or it would be really, really nice if we got a, sign- a fairly significant win soon. And that is a fairly significant yeah. win, particularly, uh, you know, Ryder Godon, who's been... He's a strong guy, someone, you know, we see in the finale of races, but he's not been a prolific winner. And you could sort of tell from the celebrations and quotes afterwards that everyone in the team was thrilled, not just for the team to win a decent sized race, but for him to win yeah. a he, race. He's like really like, he's a great guy. Um, you know, last year we crashed in Liège in that big crash together. We went to the hospital together, everything. And I'll never forget that week. He called me every single day to make sure I was doing okay, you know, which I just thought was like, that was like a really, I was like, wow, this is a really good guy, you know, like he, he's a really an awesome person. And uh, yeah, he's, he's really kind, um, but he doesn't always have the best racing uh, new or intelligence, you know? So um, I was joking watching the race that like, as long as, Dorian can go to the line in a group of 10 or less he'll win because if there's 30 guys in the group he'll start the sprint from 35th position you know so like uh, <laughs> he he is so strong I mean this guy is one of the on our team he's probably one of the strongest guys I mean he's insane um but like uh yeah you know it just hasn't exactly come out on the road um as much as it probably could have um so I was really really happy to see him win because I think that was a long time coming and really well deserved. So, well, if uh, we're already giving the win to Pogacha, I mean, I've got to say, Larry, Enric Mass's previous best result of Flesh Wallow in his thirtieth, which is basically mm. kind of almost last, really, isn't it, of the people who are trying to get on the podium? <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> we shall see. I mean, he's not punchy, but but yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's this is the it, second time. This is the second time Warbass has, has aimed broadsides at Emmerich Masters. I was just the person I, I who said Emmerich maybe Mas- he's an outside <laughs> chance. Come on. You completely rubbished his chances in the Tour de France, I remember, a few months ago. <laughs> I probably wasn't wrong. Anyway, though, right? if, if, if Pogacar does win, that will be Amstel and Flesh under his belt. And then it, it raises a question of whether he can win Liège-Bastogne-Liège on Sunday. Uh, a lot of road to cover before then, but it would be the first time on the men's side, it's been done since Philippe Gilbert in 2011. I think the only other rider to have done it is the late Davide Rebellin in 2004. Anna van der Bregen did it in 2017. It's um, We always see the same kind of riders up there or in contention or prominent in these three races, despite the fact they are they are actually quite different, different aren't they, really? They're, we lump them all together because of, they're a week apart, but... Yeah, we line always used to malign the fact that, particularly in the year when Rebelin won, there were three very, very similar finales, weren't they? There was the Koiberg, there was um, the Mudahui, and then there was the finish in Ancien Liège. And now, if that were to happen, and I think there's a good chance of it happening, and you know that the three scenarios are going to be very different, not least because we've got the big rematch or this sort of clash of the titans that everyone's really 
licking their lips at, and that is Remco versus Pog um, at the weekend. Evan Paul, of course, defending champion, been at altitude the last few weeks preparing the Giro. And you know that both of those two, I and mean, we talked about anticipating the anticipation, um, both of those two are going to be really aggressive, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I think that'll be, uh, well, I was going to say a good race to watch, but I guess I'll be in it. <laughs> I might have to watch their their antics after the race, but uh, but yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it'll be a really interesting uh, race, uh, that's for sure in Liège, but I think that's definitely something, what you just said, uh, you know, it used to be that these races were all quite similar. You know, Kahlberg was an uphill sprint in Amstel, uh, Muir de Huy, I mean, not really exactly a sprint, but kind of like an uphill sprint. Um, and then Liège, okay, it's super hard. And then, you know, sometimes there was a group coming into the bottom in the finish in Anse. Um, so, you know, I think uh, this year they're like totally different. Um, and, you know, over the last few years, they've really changed those races so much. So, yeah, to even do it now, it's probably even crazier than it was before. Larry, I always find myself before Liège, well, I always, I always look at near pros who are thrown into Liège and see how they fare. And I always, maybe mistakenly, but I sometimes use this as a gauge of how much of a, of a sort of culture shock it's been for a near pro to be thrown into the World Tour. If, if a guy finishes and finishes well in Liège, I always think, oh, that guy's probably got a future. Um, when you're in the bus on Sunday or generally before Liège, best on Liège. I mean, how intimidated are you by the well, the distance and the difficulty of the course? And yeah, how, how apprehensive do you think a lot of riders are generally before Liège, best on Liège? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, reason, a reasonable amount of apprehension. You know, it's like, I think we do so many races every year that we don't get nervous that much. But when you do the really big ones, like the monuments, mm. then you start to feel a little bit nervous because, you know, they're like that much more important. They're also like that much harder. So, you know, I think um, you are nervous because a lot of the race is also done on positioning. I mean, yeah, you obviously need the legs, but before you have the legs or you, before you show your legs, you need to be in good position. So, you know, first you come into like the trio of climbs, um, which is, is it Rosie or which one's the first one? Then, then you do like uh, Stucco, Haute-Levé. Uh, Stucco. Just before Stucco, there's one climb. Uh, st- I forget. Anyway, you do a trio of climbs there. So like if you aren't in good position there, you lose so much energy. And, you know, that can already set you up poorly. And then when you come into La Redoux, it's this downhill, super fast drag race into the turn for the bottom of the climb. And, um, you know, that's super important to get right. Both of those are really, really important. So I think someone like me, whose job is to position the leader into these spots, like I get really nervous for that position, um, that positioning fight, because I, I know like that's where I really have to be good, you know? And then I think for the leaders, it's also like, they're also nervous because they know like if they mess that up, that costs them a lot of energy for the final. So um, I think there's just these little points that you get really nervous for. And then, um, you know, I think the legs part, that's uh, you have the legs you have and, and you don't get too nervous about that. So, Well, Larry, best of luck. Thanks. <laughs> best of luck. Best of luck to you. And we will be, Lionel and I will be enthroned on our respective couches enjoying the spectacle. You will not be. Um, just Lionel, just you there talking about the likelihood of Pog winning all three of these races. It got me thinking when people started to talk about this yesterday, I started thinking about what Pog's record is going to look like before the Tour de France because I think there's a high likelihood 
Well, he's going to go to the Tour of Slovenia after these races. He's going to have a break and then go to the Tour of Slovenia. And based on the past couple of years, it's highly likely that he will win the Tour of Slovenia. And having won a couple of stages, unless he starts gifting them to Rafa Maika like he did last year. But he, he he may well go into the Tour de France having won more races than he has not won this year. Well, his, which, his um, lowest race finish in either a one-day race or a GC classification is fourth at Milan San Remo. Obviously, he's finished lower than that in the, um, you know, the run of the mill stages, if I can put it like that, at Paris-Nice and, and wherever. But his, his win rate is extraordinary. And in the races that he's trying to win, the one-day races and the GC, I mean, that is an incredible... Uh, record, but we've talked about this in recent weeks. This, this sort of quintet of riders that just are not allowing anyone else to have a look in, really. And I suppose the aliens this weekend. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, we've we've been talking up the the Vanderpool Van Art clash, and we're waiting to kind of, um, you know, we're waiting. Well, we've seen Pogacar mixing it in that. Now Pogacar kind of steps out of that Venn diagram into another. Venn, this doesn't quite work because a Venn diagram is supposed to have more than two things overlapping. But he's but it is in, it, it is in your is in your contract that you have to. There has to be one Venn diagram in every episode. There has to be one tortured analogy in every et- episode. Yeah, but yeah. he's oh, he's step, definitely more than one. He's stepping out of the the Van Art Van der Poel axis into the the Remco Evnepool axis, and then later in the summer he'll step into the Vingegaard axis. I mean, this is this is extraordinary. We talk about the level of these riders, and and Pogacar, he is able to match that level, and in some cases exceed that level across the whole spectrum, which is the extraordinary thing, isn't it? So we will see how we haven't really seen Pogacar and Evnepool go head to head in a in a one day race or in a or in a big stage race yet. So this is kind of like the first road, the first stop on the road towards well, the 2024 Tour de France, perhaps. Well, actually, I don't know whether, I mean, Pog seems to think, or he has suggested, and I think he even said it after yesterday's race, that Remco, I mean, there's a bit of kidology probably, and um, playing down his own superiority. But he sort of said, every time I've come up against Remco in a big race, I've lost. Um, it happened... San Sebastian last year where Pog was nowhere and then at the Worlds of course it happened but it's not it's not a large sample size is it no and no they haven't really been in there in each other's orbit have they really uh, you know no. they haven't been both on song and we assume assuming nothing happens on Wednesday to Pogacar and assuming that Evnepool is in uh, the sort of shape that we've seen him so far this spring. We assume they will come to the line as a kind of the, the joint favourites. And unfortunately for, for Larry and the rest and uh, that battle for positioning, it's going gonna, it's gonna to start early, isn't it? it <laughs> yeah, I think so. You're, you're just going to see the town sign with the, you know, Liège <laughs> with the cross through it. And that's when it's going to start, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, we talked we we talked the other week about people taking shortcuts in races or sort of abbreviating the course of races um, very creatively. I mean, Liege Bastogne, surely there are opportunities there to just nip across, you know, a couple of a couple of valleys as the peloton heads down to Bastogne. <laughs> yeah, the problem just, is that's just, the easy part going down to Bastogne. It's the the coming back that's the hard part. So. You could probably go from Hufalis and cut across to La Roche. Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, you, yeah, you uh, should probably just skip Roche à Falcon, then maybe you can do something, you know? <laughs> just take the highway, just straight back to Liège. 40 kilometres solo, though. It's not, not going to yeah. be that much easier. 
Larry, before you go, last week we had Mitch Docker on. We asked him where his weather vane was pointing as far as the Tour de France is concerned, more in Vingegaard's direction or Pogacar's direction. Do you have any thoughts on that at the moment? Um, we know we know you don't think Emmerich Mass is going to, you know, gatecrash the party, no. but... but um... I'd probably have to lean uh, Team Team Pogacar right now, but uh, um, I'm sure Vingegaard will be super good as well. Uh, I think it'll be a good battle, but I, I'd probably <clears throat> lean a bit towards Pogacar. You have to say that because you you live near him. No, but I, I don't know. That's actually some, what I believe. Some, so. some gold blend one day, you know, coming back for a race late on a Sunday night, you might need some instant coffee. Yeah, so, yeah. you know knock on his door well Larry all the very best mate thank you um, I hope it goes well thanks we look forward to seeing you triumphant atop the Mudder Heat we on Wednesday <laughs> and, and in Liege on Sunday indeed and we'll catch up with you Larry we'll be seeing a lot of you at the Giro I've got big plans for you you don't know about these big plans yet Harry awesome. but I've got big plans okay. for you at the Giro sounds like a plan uh, it could be, could be daily war bus <laughs> at the Giro awesome maybe even hourly oh shit um, so <laughs> so We'll catch up soon, Larry. Okay, sounds good. Arrivederci. Ciao, ciao. Before we discuss the real breakthrough performance of Ben Healy in the Amstel Gold Race, a quick mention for our partners at MAP, who, of course, designed and made the Cycling Podcast collection. The jersey is available at map.cc. That's M aap.cc and well they are launching the alt road collection i think it's available now but the idea is they're trying to inspire people to get away from their screens and out onto the open road or maybe the open off road kind of into the wilderness again really daniel it's it's right up our street this it's a collection of clothing designed for the job but versatile enough to be comfortable when you're not on the bike they're also using lots of recycled materials there's cargo bib shorts with pockets there's a stowable anorak there's vests and jackets and some of the stuff features reflective print patterns for low light conditions just in case you're out there in the wilderness for a long time i mean often on these kind of adventures you think you're out for a four or five or six hour ride and it ends up being double that distance when you're when you're riding over the savannas of not Watford. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, oddly, on the Scotland tour, even when we were in quite urban areas, we went, you know, here and there and left and right and, and found that we were we were kind of in an urban wilderness in a lot of the time. So people sort of mocking the Tour de Cosse and Scotland for being included in the wilderness category at the Sports Podcast Awards, very much wide of the mark. Anyway, MAP have also partnered with Apidura to produce some compact luggage, so the frame pack, saddle pack and handlebar pack so really the theme of their season is get off the beaten track get away from our screens and just enjoy the fresh air and the open air the open road the open off road now before we hear a bit more about ben healy corrections corner more of a corrections cul-de-sac uh, the the first correction is uh, just from a few moments ago i've done a bit of research at chris boardman the 1995 prologue of the Tour de France. He did indeed fracture his ankle in six places, I, I believe. But by all accounts, the team car, which was travelling very close behind him, didn't actually run over his ankle. I did doubt myself when I said that, so I looked it up. I'm sure people were shouting at their uh, phones, shouting at their speakers, saying, I've got it wrong again. Can I just say, Lionel, my favourite piece of trivia about that day that ride and i may have mentioned this on the podcast before but i discovered last year that the arkea samsic rider elie uh, gilbert 
was born the same evening in the same hospital where Chris Boardman was being treated for his injuries after that crash in Saint-Briot Extraordinary, extraordinary. Sticking with the sort of injury theme, Daniel, uh, last week you were talking about Wout van Aert and his extraordinary injury-free run and a few people did point out that he had quite a high-profile crash at the Tour de France in 2019, do you remember in the, in the time trial in that Pau? Is true. And that kept kept him out of action for a yep. while. Um, I mean, it, I, I must apologise to literally hundreds of people who've pointed out that AstroTurf is a trade name. Um, sorry, sorry about that. And of course, I was talking about the um, the, the the rap group from the late 80s uh, who popularly they took the badges off from memory mercedes or audi cars wasn't it uh it it, it was DMC, Beastie Boys, wasn't it? not public enemy as i said there oh well, of course anyway yes. i mean of course it was yeah corrections corrections motorway this week but we'd uh let's crack on let's, let's indeed crack on Lionel, you mentioned Ben Healy. We've mentioned him on several occasions now. I mean, the breakout performance of the last couple of weeks, I mean, we've featured quite a lot of EF education first breakout performers this year or certainly riders who have surprised us in in various races, in various contact, contexts. We had Esteban Chavez, who had won the Columbia National Road Race Championships. We had Nielsen Paulus, who was sort of the star of February, wasn't he? February and, and early March to a certain extent. And Ben Healy. I mean, Ben Healy, when I was sort of pondering how well he's been riding over the past few weeks, I just had to go back and check um, what his first season was like with EF Education Easy Post. He turned pro at the start of last year and put in, you know, a good rookie season, very solid, lots of different races on lots of different terrains. But there was there was nothing really to make one think that he would be one of the main contenders coming into the Arden Classics. And, well, two Arden Classics or semi-Arden Classics down, or Limburg Classics, he's finished on the podium in both of them. And, well, he was the best of the rest. He was the best of the non-aliens, the mere mortals, at Amstel Gold at the weekend, wasn't he? He was indeed, yeah. I mean, he got uh, a couple of wins under his belt early in the season, a stage of the uh, Coppi e Bartoli stage race in Forli, and then the Grand Prix Industria e Artigianato, which, uh, I mean, again, a, a bit like was, I said earlier about the French Cup races, you know, these, these are tough races, um, not to be taken lightly. But this week has been extraordinary. And we should also mention that at Paris-Roubaix, he wasn't riding, but he was part of the team group. He was out in a team car handing up water bottles to his teammates. And uh, I mean, that, I think that says something about the, the sort of team spirit at EF education. And we've talked so much about this cluster of teams that have hoovered up so many victories. But uh, if you take the, the next level down, um, EF Education have notched a fair number of wins themselves. They're actually doing pretty well this season, really well this season. And Healy's a really interesting rider, really interesting case. I mean, people people who weren't familiar with him and his pedigree up until a few weeks ago would have seen that he's an Irish rider, but he grew up in the United Kingdom. 
His dad is of Irish origin, but you'll also notice, or probably English speakers will notice when we hear from him in a minute, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago on the podcast, that his, his accent is more than slightly reminiscent of another Irishman's, or another writer who, who represented Ireland, uh, Dan Martin, and it's because they grew up in a similar part of the United Kingdom, um, close, both of them close to Birmingham. Uh, ben Healy started cycling on the track his dad took him to the track when he was very young but he was on course to pursue some sort of racing career or he thought he was he hoped he was and um, on on a mountain bike as a teenager he was a very good mountain biker but again echoes of dan martin dan martin sort of decided he sort of opted out of the british cycling track program didn't he am i right in thinking he wasn't sort of ditched by the British cycling program. He decided that at that point they were very much focused on indoor cycling, as I call it, track racing, and he wanted to look elsewhere, have broader horizons, and particularly, you know, he wanted to uh, compete and do well and develop in hilly races, which is what he did in his pro career. Ben Healy was um, in the British cycling mountain biking program and then got dropped. And it was at that point that he turned his focus to the road. And, you know, just sort of reading a bit about his story today, Lionel, it's interesting. There were a few, a couple of occasions where, as you look back with hindsight, it seems as though he could have slipped through the cracks. Um, I know that someone we know well, Lionel, rider agent Jamie Barlow, at one stage, he secured Ben Healy a spot on the Wiggins team, but that was by no means a foregone conclusion i think they had one spot left and it wasn't it didn't look as though he was going to get it at one point and you know there have been other times in the last few years when well certainly there hasn't been the same sort of stampede um, to sign this rider that we've seen over the last few years with you know these sort of hotly touted juniors turning pro ever earlier um, on a fast track to to greatness and it's quite a sort of antithetical story really and, and i suppose reassuring um it will be reassuring for a lot of budding young riders that there isn't just one path to the world tour and there isn't just one path to these rarefied heights of the world tour that ben healy has been scaling this week should we find out a little bit more lionel about that week that ben healy has had from the man himself from ben healy 22 years old. Lionel, I noticed today, actually, he was born on September the 11th, so a year before the 9-11 attacks to the day. So let's hear from him. I spoke to him today, that's Monday, and we'll also hear for a bit of background from his EF Education First Easy Post Direct Sportive, Tom Southern. Here they both are. I just well, wanted to ask you, first of all, I mean, when you woke up this morning, what was, what was the kind of main image from yesterday's race that maybe keeps flashing through your mind today? I think it's, it's got to be Pogacar, uh, yeah, putting in a serious attack <laughs> against me and Pidcock and dropping us both and, and looking down and going, oh, how much power am I doing here? <laughs> I can't, which I can't was, see which, this which much was, longer. Which was, how much can you remember? Over 700 for a good 30 seconds at least. So, um, yeah, it was uh, pretty serious. <laughs> I mean, Ben had um, a really mature outlook to the season even before the season began last year. So I caught up with him in October or something um, in the UK. I went to see him and we talked a bit about, you know, like kind of what a program might look like and what sort of races he should could 
think about doing. And his sort of mentality was along the same lines as ours, which is we need to put you in a bit of everything without too much pressure and sort of find where you're going to go as a rider and what you can and can't do and what you enjoy. And, and there was last year he basically got himself ready to go anywhere that he had to go and if he had to fill a gap in a team in a big race because it came up he, he was ready to do that and he had some smaller races some races in Belgium he did quite a few cobbled races um, and then short stage races and we sort of gave him quite a bit of space to evolve but that also there's a lot of young guys who want to come in and have like a very set program to already mm. to do this, this 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 and this but he was really open to sort of discovering himself as a rider there was a couple of things that he knew you know he didn't really like like the real heat um, for example was something that okay. he had struggled in in the past and then looked at areas to improve and I think you've spoken before about the fact that you had the opportunity maybe to turn pro earlier maybe a year earlier um, do you also sort of reflect on that now that decision to have another year as an under 23 and think that was definitely the right one in a at a time in an age when it's becoming more and more fashionable to do the opposite to turn pro earlier and earlier and even skip the under 23 yeah i think 100 percent um i'm i'm happy that i say that there's under 23 for for the three years that i did and even even looking back now i don't think a fourth year would have been a, a bad thing for me either like um yeah it was still a, a steep learning curve coming coming into the world tour and and yeah still i was still figuring out myself and uh yeah what sort of rider i could be and the best ways to to train and prepare and all these little things you know and especially i think for my generation with the covid era as well like mm. I, had a, I had a year that was 14 race days so like really can right. you call that a year of racing it's um so i, I think for sure the, the under 23 category definitely has its place and and there's there's so many good under 23s now i think if they if they stayed in the in the under 23 for at least a year and it would be a pretty competitive competitive category you know he went into some breaks like that break in Norway when he was super strong at the end and he did a few like exceptionally strong things on the bike but from the early breakaway and what's happened this year is some guys come in already at pro race weight and that there's not much room to move. But he's he's lost quite a bit of weight over the first year and he's worked works constantly on his aerodynamics and this and that. So he had a lot of room to improve and he did that. He worked out how he wanted to race and where he wanted to where he wanted to go with that. And he also worked out that actually he doesn't need to always go in an early break and hope that that's going to stick and try and win that way. Yeah, I think it's a factor of a few things. It's uh, kind of knowing more what I need to do to prepare well for races and mm. yeah having like you say have a solid having a solid year of, of world tour racing in the legs and and then I've also lost uh, a few kilos over the winter as well so yeah just you know all those things combined I think kind of add to to what we're seeing now the word from the like within the DS group was like what Ben is a level up from what it was at last year physically so we can expect more of him um, because I think you know I can't remember the name which one it was but it was third in the first one in, in New York and he did a really good ride there and then he obviously had an accident broke his hand um, and he was out for some time and he kept working in that period and he came back and did copy Bartley with me and he was you know probably the strongest rider in that race to be honest with you wow. um, no, no disrespect to Mauro Schmidt but he lost time on it the, the day that James and Sean made the break he missed it and then from there he was basically constantly taking time and getting stronger and stronger confidence has grown quite a lot from there so coming into this week we had um, you know certainly Brabant's Peel was a race where we, you know you have ambitions with him um, I think it's to get a podium in Amstel is a step above um, and the way that he did it is a step above you know a lot of people's expectations so 
this week's been a target for the whole team because probably more than the cobbles this is where our sort of spring is really because we have a more climbing based team mm. um, we had quite a lot of focus on coming to the Ardennes with the best possible team and, and Ben knew that it's close to the Giro and the Giro's been a personal ambition for him you know to go to a Grand Tour this year do a Grand Tour and you know be ready for that so this whole period has sort of been you know he, 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 he and we have had earmarked to give him some space I I think we all race to to win to win bike races, you know. We don't we don't race like there's no there's no point in taking the start line if uh, we don't think we can beat Pogacar. And um, yeah, and I don't think uh, me and Tom raced yesterday. Just just let just gonna let him ride off on us, you know. And especially the the way that I I tried to ride was was with in mind like trying to trying to beat those two guys. Uh, yeah, to the finish line. And I think yeah, that's that's part of the reason why I was. Uh, I was sit, sitting on for most of the day and, and trying to play the card that we had Nielsen behind for a lot of the day because you know if I could if I could follow the moves and and you know stay with the group and hopefully it didn't splinter up too much and uh, yeah you never know what could happen in the final but yeah like on the day uh, yeah Pogaccio just yeah ripped the race apart and um, yeah you never know in the, in another situation if uh, it was if it managed to be me Tom and Pogacar and on the on the small local lap and then, yeah there's a uh, the, the game's open to play then so yeah because we're not going to beat him on legs but if we can beat him on tactics and yeah there's always a, an opportunity you, Tom, a just about yesterday obviously a lot of recriminations about the race director's car and the impact it might have had on Ben's chances just what's your perspective at the time obviously in the car we were watching it on the TV and uh, we weren't very happy it felt like Ben had momentum on his side mm. um, at that moment then I think you know it, those things do play a different make a difference I mean, like, you have to be a little bit philosophical because if you, as Ben said himself, as soon as you got on the bus, because we're like, oh, look, you've not seen it yet, but you're going to see this and blah, blah, blah. He's like, well, even if I caught him, he was probably going to beat me in the sprint. Mm. That's no secret. There wasn't enough road for him to catch him. It's fantasy land. I think he was going to drop him in, in the last sort of three Ks mm. there. So, um, I mean, Pogaccio also did go faster up the hill. Um, so, you have to, I think we just be a bit philosophical about it and it is what it is. If you want to look at that, I mean, you watch old cycling races like I do and if you watch Milan San Remo basically in any era up to the late 2000s, whoever jumped into the motorbikes first on the Poggio yeah. had basically a bubble of like speed a police, up there. You know? A police escort to the finish line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you remember Pantani on the Cipressa yeah. and uh, Furlan or whoever. And you look at those now with the eyes we have now and you're like, what? what's happening here? So then, like, the scrutiny for one thing, it can be pretty intense, and I think it's probably best just put to the side, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, like, it would have been super awesome if I was able to to come back to Pogaccia. But, um, yeah, I think the outcome of the race probably would have still been the same. Um, and, yeah, and I, I think when he heard I was coming back as well, you know, he probably had more in the, more in the tank to keep pushing. So, yeah, it's, it's hard to say... I think it's hard to see that I could have been for Gacho because we all know he's got a pretty decent sprint and yeah, personally I know I don't so uh, yeah, it would have uh, taken a lot of lot of doing to beat him and, and yeah, I think it's just, just something that race organisers have to be aware of for the future, you know, it's, it, it can affect the outcome of race and of races and like I think thankfully it didn't it didn't hear but yeah it's it's for sure something that people need to take a note of. I think keep an eye on his uh, uh, fashion sense. Oh, God. It's, uh, it's 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 a little bit uh, out there for a bike rider, but he's a uh, no, he, he he's a cool kid, and um, you know he spends. Um, I think his partner or his girlfriend is it 
studying fashion or something at uni in London. You know, he's not a guy who looks particularly like a pro cyclist when you see him mm. casually. You know, to me, I, th I think it's quite great. Um, and he's, uh, yeah, he, he comes across as like a normal 20-something kid, you know, not, not uh, he, he obviously is quite determined and puts all, like, a lot of work in, but uh, I think he's got quite a bit of space to be uh, quite a balanced uh interesting and normal person and just finally ben obviously you got flesh in a couple of days um you talked about the watts you were putting out when pogacar rode away the other day i mean presumably you know exactly what would be required to have a a good result on the mudahui but do you think that it's ultimately the climate will suit you on wednesday you're quite bullish about your chances of of getting up there sort of in contention uh, actually, I think it's um, it's quite a different race to uh, say Brabant and Amstel, and especially how how those two races were raced. I think really suited me just an attritional hard race all day. Whereas as flesh, it's kind of uh, it's, it's a hard race, but it's still a good group into the into the last climb normally, and then it's a a bit more of a watts per kilo test right mm. at the end. Uh, I think that maybe doesn't favour me so much, but I've stepped up this year, obviously, and. Yeah, I haven't really had a chance to, to really give give that sort of effort a go. So, yeah, who, who knows what I can do. Well, I know both Tom and Ben Healy were pretty, I wouldn't say bullish, but they're quite confident about how the rest of the week might go. No sense of resignation, defeatism there, I don't think. And I think just speaking to Tom as well, I, I think they're quite hopeful that because of the Pogacar factor and because of the way he's been approaching races this year that we might see a quite an unusual edition of flesh well on an untypical version of flesh well on on wednesday and well they'll do two things that will make it exciting more exciting than what we've seen the last few years and it might suit someone like ben healy oh, i mean well we've we've heard uh larry warbash's opinion on you know the idea that the apple cart might be upset um i'm mixing my cheese roll and my apple cart metaphors there uh we shall have to wait and see but certainly um ben healy he's going to the giro could you put a cheese could you put a cheese on the apple cart and roll it down the hill i don't know well stilton goes very well with apple actually um but you know i mean i'm probably people uh yeah i don't know i'm, I'm not a big fan of, of fruit with savory things so that's not one for me and then, as you, I think, as you were about to mention, um, Ben Healy's that he's down for the Giro d'Italia, isn't he? And again, just looking at the results he's had so far and reading comments from people who know him, what's really interesting about this rider is his versatility because he's someone who kind of fancies himself as a time trialer, time trialist, and his results back that up as well. I suspect that he won't be going in there with big GC ambitions. It might be a case of targeting a couple of hilly days i think of all terrains that he's raced on the one that he likes the best the kind of race that he likes the best is what we would call medium mountains and he'll find plenty of that at the giro d'italia won't he well he will and he's obviously got the engine for long stages as well so the giro might well be right up his street it might lionel and lionel flesh one on is on wednesday we'll be we won't actually be in um, in Hui to catch the cheese rolling up the hill, will we? But we will be observing closely with bated breath to see if that is how Flesh Wallon finishes again this year. And we'll be 
we'll be podcasting about it shortly thereafter, won't we? We've got an Arrivé on Wednesday. We have indeed. Yeah, I've always said, have we said this before on the podcast about how uh, one of us should just watch the final climb? Somebody, uh, one of us volunteers to only watch the last 1.3 kilometres from the bottom of the Murdochui up to the top. And then you have to, whoever that person is, then has to summarize the race just based on that. And then we decide, the other person then would decide whether or not that is an accurate summary of the entire 200 plus kilometer uh, race. Maybe, I mean, you're up for that? Is that, is that too, is that too wacky? I don't know. Yeah, we could do that. I was also thinking earlier today that you know, having for years tried to assume the hipster position, the hipster high ground of saying that flesh well is rubbish. <laughs> and it's the kind of race that people enjoy the first two or three times they watch it and then they realise it's rubbish. Um, I now feel that the hipster position is Absolutely. to actually love flesh well on and, and to mount a case for it being the best Absolutely, race on the calendar. Yeah. So maybe, maybe I'll be retreating to that high ground after Wednesday's race. This is you all over, isn't it? Now everyone else is saying that Flesh Wallone is uh, a waste of time until the last 10 minutes. You've decided that it's no, it's the most sophisticated and nuanced one-day race on the calendar. <laughs> <laughs> but we should put all this to a test on uh, on Wednesday. We should, we should, Lionel. Um, we'll be back, as we say, shortly, within hours of Tade Pogacar probably <laughs> winning Flesh Wallone on Wednesday. So until then, thank you, Lionel. Thank you, Daniel. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.